Welcome to Schilling Speakers Podcast. We come to you monthly from Schilling Speakers Toastmasters Club. An online club with global membership. That's here, District 91, Southern UK. Dear listeners, welcome to Schilling Speakers Podcast. This month is me, Violeta Saladiene. I'm Paul Greenway. And it's me, Audrey Lowe. We don't have Angela with us this month. We miss you, Angela. See you next time. And today we have to do three parts. Uh, we start, first of all, with our onions and roses. So tell me, Audrey, what are you going to talk about? Onions or roses this month? This month is roses. Recently, I'm taking up a new amateur radio hobby. First, I have to get a license to be able to transmit a message over a radio. After getting my license, I joined a local amateur radio club. Here, I start practicing communication via radio. There are different ways to communicate via radio, whether it needs to be formal and concise or relaxed. Example of more relaxed communication is on a once-a-week NAT meeting where you are given an opportunity to transmit over the radio by uh, our club. You need to give your call sign when you transmit a message on a radio. A call sign consists of a number and letter such as KD9BDY that is used to identify who you are. During the NAT meeting saying your call sign and get someone call sign correctly can be a challenge because D sounds close to B and my call sign unfortunately has T that has sounds like P or B. So I start saying the alphabet with phonetic alphabet such as Tango Alpha for TA. It is also a good listening practice to catch someone else call sign and what they say. Another program the club has is Run the, run the Mount event. It is a five miles run. Our task is to report the first and last runner from spot assigned to me or us along the runner path. We also need to report if there is any emergency or when someone needs medical help. Catching the first runner is easier than the last runner. What I thought could be the last runner may not be the last one. You start seeing another runner coming out of the corner. In addition to runner, there are walker too. So for the walker, I learned my lesson. I start asking, are you the last walker? Uh, is there anyone behind you? Before I report, this number is the last walker. So communication for this event is more concise, formal than during the weekly net meeting that is more relaxed and informal. So there are different ways I can use my communication skill that I learned from those master table topic. So because something new, fun, I call this my rose. Fantastic. Really, really. I enjoyed your roses. And now I know that Paul this month has his rant ready. He's been preparing it for a long time. So let's listen to Paul's rant, what he has to say to us and to our listeners. Violetta, thank you very much. Hi, everyone. My headline for this contemplation is a toast to both 
amateur speakers and amateur actors. Public speaking and acting, two realms not exactly worlds apart. We are Toastmasters, a venerable institution where folks gather to polish their public speaking, to learn the art of the pause, the power of the gesture, and the mastery of the dreaded whom. It is a place where one can transform from a mumbling introvert to a charismatic orator, or at least so we claim. Ponder for a moment, and this, I think, is the conundrum. Is rocking up to Toastmasters and expecting to become a stellar public speaker not akin to prancing about in your local drama club and expecting to emerge a professional actor? Imagine stepping onto the stage of your local drama club, rehearsing twice a month, and then, lo and behold, expecting Hollywood to come knocking with a starring role just for you. Absurd, isn't it? Yet, we think a few rounds of Toastmasters might morph us into the next Winston Churchill or Martin Luther King. Don't get me wrong. I'm knocking neither Toastmasters nor your local drama club. Well, maybe a little bit, but not too much. Both are splendid places, filled with passionate tribes and a genuine sense of camaraderie. But let us not kid ourselves. Mastery is not born from casual dalliance. It is born from relentless pursuit, coaching, advanced courses, and testing oneself outside the comfort space of the local club. Let us indulge in both pursuits. Let us enjoy the camaraderie, the learning, and the joy that comes from them. But let us not delude ourselves into believing that mastery is but a few speeches or performances away. Mastery is a journey, lonely, fraught with failure, absent of shortcuts. Let us enjoy our dalliances for what they are, stepping stones, not destinations. Thank you, Paul. It was a great rant. And I think with this, we wrap up our first part of Shilling Speakers podcast. And wait for our second part, where we have our special guest. Dear listeners, today we have a special guest in our podcast. He is a Toastmaster, a motivational speaker, actor, filmmaker, master of ceremonies, chief guest, to name a few. Justin delivered over 100 keynote speeches, trained global trainers. He is one of the very few in Asia to have Toastmasters Club named in his name. He was a runner in the international speech contest and was second in the semifinals. So please welcome our guest, 
DJ Jester. Welcome, DJ. How are you today? An absolute pleasure being here. <laughs> Thank you for coming to our podcast. It's really a pleasure. Your bio is so impressive. It's just uh, not enough time to name all the good things that you have done. And to start our today's interview, I would like with one simple question that I ask all of our guests, because everyone has a different answer and different story. So my question is, why did you join Toastmasters? And what was the reason or story behind it? Okay, people don't believe it uh, when I say this. Uh, I was a very shy child. I was extremely shy and reserved. I was so shy that the sight of three people in a room would make me wish that I could escape from that room. So somewhere I had to break that image of who I was. So there's a backstory. Yes, there was a tipping point to this particular story. I was comfortable in my space, my sacred space of loneliness or solitude. But then I went to a public library when I was a 16-year-old boy. I shifted a school from one particular school to another school. And I saw this one person who was my classmate for about six years at my previous school. He was sitting at this public library. So I went up to him. I ran up to him, as a matter of fact, and I said, hi, do you remember me? And he looks at me and he says, no. So I introduce myself and he still cannot place me. Then I tell him the name of the school in which we studied. He still cannot place me. So then I run through the list of all our class teachers. He recognizes every single one of them. And then he stands up and and he says, dude, I'm extremely sorry. I think you're mistaken. And he walks away. And it's such a humiliating experience that a person who's been in your class for about five years cannot even place you. So I went back to dad and I said, dad, I think uh, this is my plight. And my dad said, look, here, son, we are proud of you as a child. You're one of those, you know, no fast children. I mean, the PTM meetings, like you're probably the most inconsequential guy who exists in the room. Nobody ever talks about you, like, you know, but later dad told me, like, you know, so probably the guy is an exception. Why don't you go to the same school and check it out? Probably others do recognize you. So I went back to the school. I checked out with the security guard. Well, I didn't expect him to place me. Obviously, he's a person who sees thousands of children walking in, walking out year after year. Then I went to my class teachers from grade five to grade 10. None of them could place me. And then I went to my uh, physics lab, uh, chemistry lab, computer science lab. None of the teachers, attenders could actually place me. I went to the library. Yes, that's my mistake. I've never been to the library, so I don't place the librarian for that. They went to the principal, vice principal. But I suddenly felt like I was a character from a Robert Ludlum you know, novel. You know he exists, but the world doesn't. So that's when it struck me that, you know, I think it's time that I break out of this particular uh, stereotypical image with which I'm looked at, you know. Uh, so yes. that's when I decided to join Toastmasters. I was 17 years and Toastmasters said very clearly, look, your son, you're too young to join Toastmasters. Come back after a year. So uh, I said, can you make a provision as a, a provisional member or something like that? They said, yeah, if you want, you can come, you can hang around in a corner, but you won't get any credits. So that's what I did for about one year. And after I was 18, actually, I slipped into the Toastmasters movement. And ever since Toastmasters has been a family to me, and it's difficult to let go of a family. Fantastic. What an incredible story. Really, it's very difficult to believe, but I do believe you. Yeah, today people have to show timer cards to me if they want me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And now seeing how you walked on a 
world stage of public speaking that you have become a professional uh, speaker, one of the winners in semifinals of international speech contest. Could you tell us and our listeners, what is the key to your success? Okay, temperamentally speaking, I think I'm an artist. So an artist actually is perpetually dissatisfied with the world around him or her, and is perpetually dissatisfied with himself. So for me, the day I'm completely satisfied and gratified with what I do, or what speeches I've given, I think probably that's the beginning of the end. So I probably see a lot of imperfection in all the speeches. That's why I dare not record most of my speeches. Because when I revisit them, I feel that, okay, this was one glaring error. So for me, like, and I think, uh, I look at the world as an opportunity for me to contribute more. And I think like, you know, and not resting on my laurels and saying five years ago, you should have listened to this speech of mine. No, I want people to say that, okay, five years ago, you should have listened to DJ and now you should listen to him. And yes, obviously he's changed a lot. So I guess I think uh, that insatiable desire to do more or to get more curious about the things that are happening around you and that wanting to go and contribute more is probably one of the reasons why I can turn back and say comfortably, yesterday I was false. Do you consider yourself to be a perfectionist? I'm not. I wish I could, but I'm not. I'm not a perfectionist. <laughs> I think perfection is paralysis. I chase excellence over, over perfection. Because perfection is a zenith. It is a horizon that you can possibly touch. You know, it's got a denominator. I mean, probably the denominator is 100 or whatever, you know, but excellence doesn't have a finish line. So when you chase excellence, as one of the Nike ads said, there is no finish line to the road of excellence. So just do it. So that's what I believe in. <laughs> yes, great words. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, moving on, um, our next question, actually, my next question is, what do you enjoy most about uh, training other peoples? I see that uh, from your bio, from your um, LinkedIn profile, that you are a, a famous trainer. You've trained a lot of um, even uh, uh, world leaders and you provide a lot of uh, workshops, masterclasses. What do you enjoy most of them? Okay, uh, I personally believe there are two kinds of trainers. One is an informational trainer. Now, an informational trainer is a person who gathers a lot of knowledge, becomes an authority on a particular subject, and tries to disclose that particular information to a group of people. So people at the end of the session go back pretty enlightened about a particular subject. But I believe in the second kind of trainers, and I belong to that particular, I would like to believe that I belong to the second group of trainers, who are not just informative, but who are transformative. You know, at the end of a program is a person not just enlightened with information, but he's transformed because of the insights that are provided. For me, I think like you know, that is a space that I'd like to belong to. To straightjacket it with a very simple example, a couple of months back, I was doing a training program and it was a five-day training program. And there was this particular expectation mapping session that we had at the beginning of every uh, training program. And there was this young man who stepped forward and he said, I have a problem with stuttering and stammering. The minute I step in in front of a big audience, yes, my throat goes for an excursion and uh, I find it difficult to control. So I call him aside and I ask him this question. Is it an ENT problem? I can't solve. I'm not an expert. But if it's a psychological block, definitely I can. So in front of the entire gathering, 
I take up this particular challenge and I say at the end of five sessions, ladies and gentlemen, this young man is going to stand and speak in front of the audience and you are a witness and testimony to the fact that he's not going to stutter and stammer. And at the end of five days, he spoke. He spoke. I gave him five minutes, but he spoke for 15 minutes. And the audience stood up and gave him a standing ovation and their hands were almost red in applauding for this young man. It is that sense of gratification that training gives you that makes you want you to go back and contribute more. So I believe that is the thing that I enjoy the most. Even if there's just one person in a training room who was actually transformed by what you said, by the activities that you did for them and the insights that you provided, then I think you've done a perfect job for them. Fantastic. Yes. What a great insight and what a great answer. Thank you. Thank you so much. And moving on, um, my next question is, um, what was your greatest failure oh, during all that. these years? Because <laughs> it's been, I, I believe, in more than 10 years, even more, maybe more than 20 years you are in Toastmasters. Okay, if you're talking about my Toastmasters failures, I think it's a bit too much, you know, because I hold the record for having failed the maximum number of times in a speech contest. So I keep telling everybody, dude, I hold the record. Please don't contest with me with regard to the list of failures that I have. <laughs> but the capacity to wanting to bounce back, because I know for a fact, like, and I don't want to be on my deathbed and saying that, oh, no, I should have gone back to the drawing board. I should have tried one more time. But I would say my greatest failure is this. You know, If I had to probably turn back the clock and play a small science fiction movie with reality and if I were to say that if I could talk to my 17 year old self you know my 16 year old self and if I'd ask that 16 year old self are you proud of the man that I've become as a speaker and I think the 17 year old would say no you could have done more you could have reached out more you could have been better than who you currently are so I guess that hunger that I had then the the voracious appetite I had then somehow because of probably a few milestones that you have reached you tend to get a touch complacent because you know the process, you know, but I think I would like to go back to that particular space. I think it was Pablo Neruda who said, like, where's the child that I once was? Is it still in me or is it gone? So I guess like, and I would like to go back to that space and I would never like to lose uh, that individual that I was. So I'd probably say like, you know, that has been my greater failure, not just a simple incident, but I would say like, you know, a mindset change, you know, I mean, as a, 16-year-old when I first, a 17-year-old when I first stepped into a Toastmasters meeting, I would sit with a pen and paper. I would note down each and everything that actually transpired in a Toastmasters meeting. I would go home, I would reflect on whatever, whoever said. And after that, I would probably play each and every single table topic in my mind and I'd tell myself, okay, if this topic was given to me, how would I have addressed it? I'd call up my mentor and say, like, okay, mentor, can I run through this particular topic? Uh, does it sound good for you? And my mentor used to get livid and ferocious with me because it would be 12, 13 in the night. And he would say, what's your problem in life, man? Just go to sleep. I think I want to get back that particular feeling. And I think the fact that you lost that is probably one of the greatest failures of my life. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, my last question is, what advice can you give to Toastmasters who want to follow your steps? What is the piece of advice that I would like to give to any new Toastmaster? Well, here's my piece of advice for you. Success in any walk of life 
be it Toastmasters, public speaking, leadership, business, anything. It's not a destination, but it's a journey. It's a process. So the first thing, you need to respect that process. And when you respect that process, something magical happens. I mean, I liken the Toastmasters journey to be like a hot air balloon. What happens when you get into a hot air balloon? Only one thing happens, you go upwards. And when you reach out to someone, you take that person also along with you in the journey of climbing the heights. The second thing, in the process, yes, you may hit roadblocks. You may find other people probably be more successful than you are at a much lesser time. Please do not grudge another person's success. You do not know what moments of fear, anxiety, doubt that they had. You do not know the uh, the number of uh, hours that they, number of sleepless nights that they spend in order to come across to the place that they have reached. So never ever grudge another person's success. You have your own path. And that's why in Toastmasters, we call it the pathways. And the third thing, the most important thing is enjoy the journey. I mean, the day you stop enjoying the journey, the journey is definitely not worth it. So I'd like to leave you all with this beautiful line by Helen Blanchard, the first lady international president of Toastmasters International, who articulated this so beautifully about Toastmasters. She said, if you can get out of Toastmasters, what you can get out of Toastmasters. If you can get out of Toastmasters, what you can get out of Toastmasters, you can never get out of Toastmasters. Thank you so much. You've been a wonderful uh, host, Violeta. Thank you so much, Violeta, for giving me this platform. And here's wishing each and every single person, newbie Toastmaster, veteran Toastmaster, or I have been there, Toastmaster. Here's wishing you all the best, and may you have an absolutely fabulous life ahead. Thank you, DJ Justin, for coming today to our Shilling Speakers podcast, for being a guest, and for a wonderful interview. Dear listeners, with this, we end our second part of Shilling Speakers podcast. Welcome back to the Shilling Speakers podcast, part three. Today in our soapbox, we have Anthony Garvey, the president of Shilling Speakers Club. So, soapbox is yours, Anthony. Thank you, Violetta. Today, in my soapbox, I will share a story with you. To Miss Bennett, I am sorry to tell you that I have had to exclude your son permanently from school. Roger Eserhope, headmaster at Cheen Common Junior School in South London, made headlines when he expelled a 10-year-old pupil with the following words. It was newsworthy because the expulsion was not issued after a face-to-face -face meeting with the parents. It came in the form of a text message sent by the exasperated headmaster to the child's mother. I suppose we should be grateful after all, the headmaster did resist the temptation to send the message, don't come back to school. A trawl through the newspaper archives uncovers another bemused teacher who could not decipher an essay one of his 13-year-old students had written. 
I could not believe what I was seeing. The page was riddled with hieroglyphics, many of which I simply could not translate, the teacher told the newspaper. The girl's essay began. My summer hoes were C-W-O-T. Before we used to go to see my bro in NY. His GF and their three kids, F-T-F, I-L-N-Y. It's a great place. Which, according to the newspaper, translates as, my summer holidays were a complete waste of time. C-W-O-T. Before, we used to go to New York to see my brother, his girlfriend, and their three screaming kids face-to-face, F-T-F. I love New York. It's a great place. As you may have guessed by now, I am not a fan of text messaging, but I guess I am in a minority. It's not just the incessant rat-a-tat-tat key hammering or the Chinese torture meep of the message received that gets my blood boiling. It's the complete destruction of language, grammar, spelling and syntax. I had mistakenly thought that this alarming trend was confined to teenagers until I started to get messages from people who ought to know a whole lot better. A friend of mine took me to lunch in a swanky Dublin restaurant recently. He's one of those smart fellows whose decisions help shape the economic direction of our country. And no, he doesn't work for the IMF. I sent him a handwritten note to thank him for his generosity. The following morning, I received a text message from him on my mobile phone. The message said, TNX, 1M for message. And then the following word, T-A-N-S-T-A-A-F-L. T-A-N-S-T-A-A-F-L. See you later. Now, I like to think I'm a reasonably intelligent man. I have even been known to run the Irish Times cryptic crossword close on the odd occasion. So I sat down to study his message. After a few seconds, I was able to decipher most of it. The pigeon English thanks a million. The cringingly awful see you later. But T-A-N-S-T-A-A-F-L. I was completely baffled and made a mental note to ask Lisa, my 12-year-old niece, what it meant when I saw her next. But the unpleasantness of text messaging doesn't end there. The accident group said, you're sacked, goodbye, to 2,400 people, many of them by text message. And incredibly, the former Prime Minister of Swaziland, Sibusiso Diamini, was sacked by text message following a political reshuffle by the Southern African nation's king. You must be joking. Whatever next? 
Will villains receive text messages from the local police station saying, you is Nixki? Oh, please. In Ireland, over 90% of 15 to 24-year-olds own a mobile phone. But youngsters today have such a lot to put up with. We just don't understand the strains they are under. Research by Mobile Youth, or should I say MY, found that some teenagers suffer withdrawal symptoms if their phone doesn't ring, leading to lack of self-esteem and anxiety. In some cases, it gets so bad that they suffer sleep deprivation and cases of repetitive strain injuries are also common as text addicts lie awake at night glued to their mobile phone. A case of my thumb hurts. Last night was Lisa's birthday, my 12-year-old niece. And after handing over my present, earrings chosen by a street-savvy friend, I asked for her help to decipher my friend's text messaging mystery. Her eyes rolled to the back of her head like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. Love the bling-bling, but get with the program, Granda, she said. T-N-S-T-A-A-F-L. There is no such thing as a free lunch. I need to go back to school. That's all for today for my soapbox. With that, we conclude another insightful episode of the Shilling Speakers podcast. I'm Angela, and together with the team, we invite you to reflect on today's topics. And join us again for more enlightening discussions. Stay curious and please subscribe and share with your friends.